Good morning, everyone. Scripture reading this morning is from two passages. The first one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our second passage is from the book of Revelations, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. mentioned before that we were uh, instructed, I guess not taught, because it's not part of, part of the teaching proper, but some people who uh, teach others how to preach, one of the little helpful tips they give is be careful about using sports analogies, because you'll find out that many people aren't following the sport you're talking about, or they don't care, or they're cheering for the other team. But I'm going to start this morning with a sports analogy, because you'll get this, and you'll see why I'm doing it. 
south of the border, there's something really historic happening. I'm not talking about the election, though that seems to be historic might be a word to, to suit it. Uh, this is to do with Major League Baseball. Because there are two teams playing in the World Series for the championship, and neither one of these teams has won the World Series in an awfully long time, longer than most, most of our lifetimes here. The Cleveland Indians haven't won, James can check me on this, but is it 68 years? 68 years, the Cleveland Indians have not won the World Series. And ready for this, James is a Cubs fan, 108 years it's been since the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series. And they're playing each other. So it could be today, though James hopes not, or it could be uh, later in the week that one of these two teams becomes, and this is, people can't even imagine that this is possible, World Series champions. And there will be people uh, in both of those cities, really, that will think, how could that, have, how could that ever happen? We're so not used to this. In fact, in last night's game, I was watching last night's game, and there was a player on the Cleveland Indians who hit a home run, a three-run home run. And he was reminded in an interview after the game that the last time a player hit a three-run home run in Wrigley Field, Chicago, in a World Series game was, anybody know? The last player to do it. You're right. It's like giving the answer to Jesus in church. Is it Babe Ruth? Yeah. Babe Ruth in 1932. And yet we will have either Chicago Cubs or Cleveland Indians being champions. I start this way because when we get to a topic like Jesus reigning, to say Jesus is king brings up as much kind of bemusement as the possibility that Chicago or Cleveland could be the champions of baseball. More. Jesus reigns. That's archaic in most people's minds. It's something that couldn't possibly be. We have looked in our series, The Living Word, at Jesus' teaching, saying that the teaching of Jesus Christ then and now contrasts with the teaching of the world. We looked at Jesus loving, saying that the world constantly divides, but the church, when it's at its best, and certainly Jesus Christ does not divide. His love is for all people. And he shows us that the love of God is for all people. We looked at Jesus' healing, and we asked there for a bigger view, not that we negate this, but a bigger view of healing than simply he's healed my physical ailments, which can be part of what it means, Jesus' healing, but certainly Jesus' healing is bigger than that. It's about the salvation, the healing of the nations. Jesus serving, that God is with us in intimacy and vulnerability, that Jesus Christ has become one of us, to the point of Jesus dying, where love and mercy meet at the cross, and instead of moving away from us, that God keeps this distance in upward mobility, so to speak, that God in Jesus Christ moved towards, moves towards us, even becoming human, even dying, as was read for us in the scripture reading. That God is with us, even in Jesus Christ, that God is with us, even as the judge of our sin. He is with us in this. He doesn't judge us from a distance. And then last week, Jesus saving the personal need we each have for salvation. I am lost without the love of Jesus Christ. But in acknowledging the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, I recover my identity. This is a gospel Christian truth. In accepting salvation in Jesus Christ, I become 
who I am. See, I could say I become who I was supposed to be, but I become who I am, who God has made me to be. And today we look at Jesus reigning, saying these preposterous statements. He is over all. He is king. He is victorious. If he is not over all and not victorious, then everything else we mentioned is simply wishful thinking. The trouble is, when we think of reigning and king and kingdom, the words that that conjures the feelings are feelings of power, fear on the part of subjects even. Uh, I picked up a book recently for Keith and Allison because they're due to have another baby in February, end of February. And I was in kids' books uh, getting something else. But anyway, I saw this book. They have the best kids' books there. You should go there. And uh, there was this book that I don't know why the title attracted me. The title was It's Good to Be King. And on the, it was an illustrated book, and on the cover was a little baby. And it told the story of, and it was interesting, and it works perfectly for them, because uh, the, the, the gist of the story was there was already one child, but there was another baby coming. And so this baby was born, and, and the one who had been king before, right, that's the idea, now there's this new baby. And isn't the baby wonderful? And you cuddle it, and you play with this baby, and you love this baby so much, and it's the greatest gift in all the world. And then you turn the page. And uh uh-oh, the baby cries, and the baby's diaper has to be changed, and the baby gets all the attention, and the baby just never seems to be satisfied. And then you turn the page again, and I guess by then there's developmentally the kid has grown up a bit, enough to be able to sit in a chair, because this new baby is sitting there over his kingdom. Mom and dad are on the couch, and they are spent. And the other child, the first child, is in the corner looking abandoned and forgotten. And the place is a mess. And underneath that page, it simply says, it's good to be king. We can't even get away from this sense of king and kingdom, that there is somehow a domination. I'm in control now. Right? But Jesus reigning, and I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to instruct you in this, Jesus reigning will always be different than any other reign you can imagine. It's not a domination, it's an enlivening. Jesus brings us to life in his reign. So what ought we to know about the reign of Jesus Christ and why would it matter for our lives today? Firstly, I do have this somewhere. You got it? Oh, where do we go? There we are. Firstly, his kingdom is like no other. We are oppressed here. I've got the actual quote so you can follow me. We are oppressed, or sorry, we are not oppressed and extinguished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but liberated and refashioned. In other words, it's not a kingdom of domination. So when I read Philippians... And I get to the part, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In my earthly understanding of king and kingdom, that becomes, I think, oh no, if my non-Christian friends see that, they'll think that this is just about, you know, God's going to get you again. It can't be that because we read what came before. This is how he gets to that exaltation. How does he get there? By lording it over people? No. No. By becoming obedient even to death on a cross, there is no one that he doesn't love. 
And at that, he is exalted. There is a different nature to it. Not lording it over us, but Jesus reigning means that I come to be who I am. Jesus reigning for me as a subject in his kingdom. See, you've got the earthly tone right when I say it that way. But Jesus reigning for me as his child means that in him I know true, utter, and complete freedom to be who I am. Secondly, the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ as he reigns is not in self for each of us, but it is in Jesus Christ. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because the current kingdom that we live in, secular humanism in our culture today, teaches us that our fulfillment is found, often teaches us this, not exclusively. I don't want to hack on the culture too much because there are many good things taught. But often the overriding thing being taught is that I will find my fulfillment in having my desires met, my appetites my comfort, my security. So then I make an assessment. Do I have what I want or more? Am I comfortable? Am I without pain or threat? And if I can answer affirmatively to all those questions, I can say, okay, things are good for me then. I can feel fulfilled. Just ask yourselves or your friends, what would it mean for you to feel fulfilled in life? And you'll often get those answers. Or you'll get the generic kind of answer right now, which I just want to be happy and I just want my kids to be happy. As if that's fulfillment on offer. Jesus' kingdom, the fulfillment of his kingdom is found in him. It's a different tone. It's not even found in a principle. This is an important Christian teaching. Because sometimes the Christian church even can go off the rails and start saying that that. Victory is found in a principle. So even a very important principle like love or grace, these are essential, important. But we are to understand the reign of of God's kingdom not as the triumph of grace. It's not that. It is victory in Jesus Christ. He becomes the bearer of what? Grace and love and peace and justice. But he is the victor, not a principle. It's not comfort or security or grace that reigns, it's Jesus Christ. So the cosmic Christ read about in Revelation chapter 1 and read for us. When I was a young Christian, I came across this description of Jesus Christ. It wasn't one that that was taught regularly, so to speak, although young people always want to study the book of Revelation. You know, you ask them, other faiths and Revelation. It's been that way for, what would you like to do a Bible study on? Other faiths, other religions, and maybe Revelation. Those are the two top answers. And I came across this description of Jesus Christ, and I don't know if I was feeling particularly, you know, tossed around at the time or whatever, but I do remember feeling, whatever else it is that I'm struggling with right now, this gives me great hope. And when was it written? This was written at a time when the church was beleaguered, persecuted. And John, the person who's receiving this vision, is on an island that's effectively a prison, a work camp prison. And they, more than us now, would be thinking, how possibly could it be that Jesus Christ reigns if I'm in this circumstance? 
Or if we are in this circumstance as a church, they would have thought that much more than we do. And it is, that that the, it is at that point that the revelation of Jesus Christ comes to John. Like the, like the veil is pulled back, the veneer between what he's experiencing and eternal reality, and he's given this vision of Jesus Christ. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. See how he's identifying the times? Patient endurance was on the island of Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The vision is being announced. And then you get to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I've always loved that. I always intend to. That John said, I turned to see the voice. Not I turned so that I could better hear the voice. But I turned to see the voice. And he says he saw seven golden lampstands, which are something, and if it was just seven golden lampstands, you would write like three chapters about the lampstands. But they pale in comparison to what he sees in the midst of the lampstands, someone like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and golden sash around his chest. Imagine seeing this when you're in a time of persecution and difficulty. And the hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were flame, fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And look what he does then, Jesus Christ. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. And I read that, and I still do sometimes in my life and my faith, and I think then, now what was it that was troubling you? doesn't mean the troubles aren't real. He is for us. He is for humanity. God has turned towards us in Jesus Christ, and I am okay, not because all of my comforts are satisfied. I am okay because He reigns. This reign is not a triumph of principle or the comfort of my life. He bears and brings all of these good things. And so my response from the scriptures, I am instructed then to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's when I begin to know the reign of Jesus Christ when I say, my life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The fulfillment of the kingdom is in Christ Jesus. He will bless us, we are told, but fulfillment is in him. Thirdly, maybe most easy for us to understand, but I think hardest for us to actually live out. The reign of Jesus Christ, Jesus reigning, as we understand this, we know that there is opposition. So Jesus reigns, but the opposition has not been dealt with fully yet. There is opposition, but there is no doubt as to outcome. So I'll give you, I've told some of you this story before, used it in little bits and pieces, or about uh, when Jen and I went this summer to Europe. And it's an easy example to use to point to opposition to the light of Jesus Christ. Because... Uh, uh, 
what it comes, it comes to my mind right away, though. Jen and I were at a tournament for Aden, but we were only about two hours away from Auschwitz, so we determined when we knew the trip was going to happen, we're not going to be that close without going, even though it's a, a difficult thing to do. So we went. Um, on the day that we went, the, Auschwitz had been closed for two days, and it's never closed. It had been closed because the Pope had been there, and they had all these, like a million or more kids for World Youth Day, like teens and young adults, in Krakow, not far from Auschwitz. And so the schedule was a bit off, and then there was a thunderstorm. The day was as beautiful as this day when we left where we were, up in Ratzlaff. but And so we didn't even bring jackets in our tiny little European car that's just slightly smaller than this podium here. <laughs> and we had passports in our pockets, just didn't want to leave them behind. And we drove down. It was a beautiful day, and partway there, this storm hit. And it was such a bad storm that even those fancy European cars, the ones that were bigger than ours, and going really, really fast, everybody just stopped on the highway and waited out at least a bit of this storm. By the time we got down to Auschwitz, it had cleared a little bit, but it was still raining quite hard. And then as we walked in, the storm kind of another wave came. And we determined to try to kind of hide out in some buildings, but couldn't really. And then we thought, how can we do that in a place where all this terrible stuff happened? Let's just be willing to get soaked. And so we walked around. The eerie thing about it was, because of the closures, which never happened, and because of the rainstorm, there was virtually nobody there. In, in the material bef- that we read before going in, it said, one of the things that's going to bother you is the crowds, because it's hard to be around, you know, people are talking and you know, talking about where they're going to go eat or something like that, and you're standing in front of this heart-rending everything there. But we walked through two-thirds of our walk through. Nobody was with us. We just took a book and did a guided tour ourselves. It made it eerie. This is the wall outside the prison. I can't believe there was a building called the prison because the whole thing was where they would shoot prisoners. You've seen it in movies, right against that wall. The Pope had just been there. He laid that wreath. That's Jen taking You can see, if you see, you probably can't see from where you are, but it's still pouring in that picture. No jacket, see? And nobody else there. This is a few kilometers away. It's actually called Auschwitz II, Birkenau, because it's not the original uh, concentration camp. This, But this is where you see the trains coming in on Schindler's List and stuff, and we went there after a few... Uh, we were two and a half, three hours at the other place. We saw, and we didn't stay there long because it was just, all it was was barracks and then they'd blown up the gas chambers at the, at the back of the property. But it became a bit overwhelming. We saw standing cells in the, in the basement of the, of the prison. And that's what almost did Jen in. I think it was because, and we don't talk about it much actually, but I, she was just utterly devastated at seeing what they did to people. And then we saw this standing cell where they shoved them in the, and literally they would stand there for all the time except when they went out to work and they would die in these places. I can see how faith would be shaken or lost at something like this and I am sympathetic to people who have lost their faith through things like this. I don't condemn them by any means. 
I didn't feel my faith attacked in seeing this. I just felt how grotesque the darkness was, the stench of it, how insane it could become, how small and petty and how stupid. We're reminded, as Jesus reigns, that his kingdom has not yet reached its fulfillment, its consummation and completion. But we are told that even the greatest darkness will not have the last say. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Or even the darkness will not be dark to you. For Jesus Christ, speaking to his disciples before his own crucifixion, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, and many of you could finish the rest, and I'll put it up, you can see it. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's easy for me to talk about it in context to a place like Auschwitz because the opposition is so obvious. But the truth is the light can be resisted. And it's not for me to look at the evil that other people have done and say that's the evil that must be done away with. It's for me to understand that the light of Jesus Christ can be resisted in my own life. I can choose fear and suspicion and hatred and judgment over the love of Jesus Christ. The light can be resisted and resisted in this world and in each of our lives, but it cannot be defeated. Jesus Christ reigns. The theological way of speaking about this, I'm looking at Daniel because Daniel said this in a few sermons as well, is that there is an already and not yet aspect to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is already happening. The kingdom is here, present now. You can know it. But it has not yet reached its fulfillment. The reign of Jesus Christ has not yet been fully culminated. There is suffering and pain and sin and sorrow and hatred and violence in our world, but it will not have the victory. Jesus Christ is the victor, his love for all people. A war is waged against sin and death and the devil. It is in this war that Jesus Christ is victor, superior to any contradiction superior to any contradiction and any opposition. You know in the Bible about Saul? Saul had made it the center of his life to resist those who walked in the way of Jesus Christ, to defeat them and even kill them. And he's going on his way. And as the story is told in Acts chapter 9, he's breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus, going about his business, approaching Damascus. And suddenly there's a light. And the light strikes him down and he falls to the ground. But it doesn't kill him. It brings him to life. No sword strikes him down. Rather a voice that says, Jesus the victor says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at this, Saul becoming Paul begins to find his true identity and purpose, and call, and life. And later, he will write, and he's written much of our scripture in the New Testament. He will write in Second Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There can be resistance to the reign of Christ, but that resistance is overcome. 
We struggle to understand the reign of Jesus, Jesus reigning, because it's unlike any of our ideas of a human king. And unfortunately, like any other religion, Christianity has at times tried to emulate earthly kingdoms, kingdoms of power and coercion in how we set up the church. It's always failed and always will, thanks be to God. In fact, much of what you see in Europe these days, if you travel around Europe, you see a bunch of empty churches, right? Beautiful places for tourists. Some of, and I'm not trying to make a whole prognosis here, but some of the reason for that emptiness is that we were setting up an awful lot of earthly kingdoms. When he was crucified, they put a sign up to mock him, king of the Jews, derision and revulsion. But it was in this very giving of himself that he became king over all. The cross becomes a symbol of the reign of Christ. So the implications for us First, it's not changing there. I just have one more anyway. Oh. The implications for us. First, our understanding of evil. The minister now, and I caught myself in this. I was about to say, please hear this. I hope you hear everything. But you've got to hear this. Wake up. If Jesus reigns, then we cannot take darkness and light with equal seriousness. The reason I'm saying please hear this is that this is something that is missed in the church very often. I come across people and conversations where the darkness has become the topic of great seriousness. More than the light. As if we live in a time when the darkness might win. Good old Karl Barth reminds us. And he's, you know when Karl Barth was writing? Before and during and after the rise of the Nazis. Right when the pictures I showed you were happening. And he was kicked out of his teaching position. And he, he opposed the Nazis at every turn. Unlike a lot of people within, especially the state church. He's writing at that time, and he writes this. The devil exists in lies. We shall think and speak of him only reluctantly, infrequently, and with great reserve. Time should not be devoted to considering, contemplating, or conceiving of the devil or to concrete interest in him, for he is not worthy of it. I understand the need that some of you feel to say, Todd, there is evil in the world. There is dark. Of course there is. But never take that darkness and evil with equal seriousness to the light. Never. Because when you do, you elevate that very evil as if it's a threat to the reign of Jesus Christ. And hear this, it is no threat to the reign of Jesus Christ. In Christ a Christianity that focuses on opposition to the light will be taken up by a constant complaining, accusing, protesting, constantly upset, constantly voicing concerns and troubles. So my question is simply, does Jesus Christ reign? Yes. Is the darkness any match for the light? Of course not. Then take the light with all seriousness and joy. Any attack against the love and grace of Jesus, any hatred or malice or contempt, cannot defeat the declaration that God has made in Jesus Christ. God has declared his victory in Jesus Christ. And this is the declaration about his love for the world. And no resistance will ever change it. 
It's like if there was opposition. So imagine Jesus Christ, the rock. We have a lot of metaphors for Jesus, right? And somebody's going to set up opposition to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They're going to burst that rock into pieces or something, explode it. This is what will happen. That resistance and opposition cannot overwhelm or shake or shatter the rock of his declaration, but can only dash itself in pieces against it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus reigns. The attack is that of the love of God, the Father and the Son. The attack of the grace of God. The affirmation of the world and the pledging of his life out of love. Is there trouble in this world? Yes, but take heart. He has overcome the world. And finally, we are then to be people of hope. I'm I'm conflating two and three. We are to be people of hope. You can't hope for what you have. There is this not yet aspect to our faith in the reign of Jesus Christ. But Christians are ultimately to be people of hope because we believe that the one who gave himself out of love for the whole world reigns. So how can we be anything but hopeful? Yes, there is still disease and terror and hatred. All of this useless in the end resistance. But one day, Revelation 21.3 and following. John heard this at the, end of the, at the end of the revealing. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is our Christian witness to the world. It's a witness of hope, not to death, morality, law, religion, goodness and badness. That's not our witness. Our witness is to Jesus Christ who reigns. And if we believe that Jesus reigns, we are to be people of hope. What's a key distinction between me as a Christian and someone who's not a Christian? So those of you who are Christians here, what's the difference between you and a non-Christian? I've trusted in Jesus Christ. You could say a lot of things, but there's at least one that is a major one. We have hope. The other way to say that is, I live my life, I aim to, I don't always succeed, I aim to live my life knowing that Jesus reigns. And my wonderful non-Christian friends who Jesus loves just as much as he loves me, they don't know that reign of Jesus Christ. I have no reason for anything but confidence. And that is why we proclaim that God is for us. And when we know that Jesus Christ reigns, here's, I like that the words are on the screen there because I'd like you to remember them. When we know that Jesus reigns, the work of the community, we're the community, us and other churches and other Christians, the Christian community, the work of the community must, must be unconditionally bright. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. So, Heavenly Father, bless us to hear your words, your call, your presence, and the hope that is in you.
Give us ears to hear. Form us as a witnessing community to the reign of Jesus Christ unlike and better than any other reign that has ever been. To the eternal reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing now. We pray for the offering as it will be taken in a few moments. That the, that, uh, the gifts that we give back to you would be used so that we would know your love and others through the work of this church would know of the love of Jesus Christ. Come Holy Spirit. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.